0: Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of God in Film. The podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the Gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and vampire with a soul, Giles Goff.
1: And I'm photographer and occasional chaos demon, Phil Coleman.
0: And for the penultimate episode of our special TV series, we'll be looking at Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off show, Angel. We'll be looking at the conspicuous use of miracles, and what they mean for the Buffyverse, and why trying to earn your redemption might just be a futile endeavour. Phil, when did Buffy come onto your radar? Well,
1: I had seen, like, random episodes back when it was being aired and being rerun and stuff. But I'd only ever really watched it in bits, and I knew of it a little bit, but I've not quite really gotten round to actually watching the whole thing. Um, However, the stuff that I have seen... um, I now, uh, I now will be watching it all the way through October, which is when we're uh, when we're recording this episode now, uh, all the way through spooky season. So uh, me and my wife are going to have a good time with that. So yeah, I've known about it, but I never really ended up getting into it for a long time.
0: I am so jealous of you because I've, I've been a fan of Buffy since 1999 when it started showing in the UK. Mm. I remember they, they ran a trail for it around sort of Christmas time, around New Year's, New Year's Day kind of time. And there was a, this will, this will date me for, for people, Melanie Sykes, who was a presenter with the like really thick Northern <laughs> accent. They're doing little trails on BBC Two. And she says, that's Giles. He's Buffy's watcher. You're like, oh, what? <laughs> Hang on. There's a, there's a Giles in pop culture. I don't know what's going on, but I'm a thousand percent on board.
1: I love the fact that it's like, hey, that's our Giles over there. It's watching at it, Buffy. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, he is. <laughs> oh, God. It's so northern. Love it. It reminds me of my yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, let's kick off with <gasps> Phil's Facts.
1: Yay. So. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is an American supernatural drama television series created by Joss Whedon and based on the 1992 film of the same name, which he also wrote. Uh, The series follows Buffy Summers, played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, the latest in a line of young women known as Vampire Slayers, or simply just Slayers. The cast hated the library scenes, since they were full of exposition and took forever to film, and they all celebrated when it blew up.
0: Do you know what the the funny thing about Buffy and Angel is that the, the cast and crew of that show do seem to solve their problems by blowing stuff up. In the first series of Angel he has this really sort of cool kind of underground lair practically where he's got he's got an office it's got like a little elevator sort of see-through elevator as it goes down but the elevator didn't work that well and it was a pain to film in. So at the end of the first series of Angel they just blow that up as well. Then they move into an abandoned hotel which of course means lots of space in the lobby to film things in. You Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things, it's just like, can we just, maybe just iron out the fact that there's no space? Yeah. So, David Borianas proved to be quite the prankster on set. He'd pull down his pants between takes to make his fellow actors break character and frequently ad-libbed or changed lines to throw them off. Sarah Michelle Gellar would sometimes fight back, however. The two would eat tuna or pickles before kissing to make the scenes as unsexy as possible and they would and she would even pin or sew her costume together to make it harder for him to unbutton or remove <laughs> I love when they've got that kind of relationship the, uh, yeah. the actors, you know it, it just sort of makes the on-screen relationship work so much better, you know
0: Yeah, I think one of the things James Master said, that when he first arrived on Buffy, he had his, his little his little trailer, and David Boreanaz came in and talked to him and said Hi I'm David, let me show you where the coffee is, this is where we go for our lunch <laughs> and the rest of it, and you're doing really well at the moment, I know you're in this little rinky dink trailer, room, but everybody loves you on this show, and you're probably going to get moved up and you probably get gonna do really well so i like when people who've got a lot of pressure on them but they can be leaders and they
1: can make people feel welcome in their in their space do you know what i mean absolutely yeah it goes a long way because it can be hard it can be tough days like you know you're filming doing night shoots and straight to a morning shoot or wherever the schedule might be you know it's it can it can yeah. be tough this show was one of the first to feature the words google it in an episode, which at one point is what Willow says.
0: One of the things about Buffy that it's known for is its Buffy speak. Literally, the way they start to they the way they use language in that show is really interesting. The way they'll sort of verb certain nouns, and also it was one of the first shows I remember that used pop culture references and intertextuality because oh, you okay. didn't see that that much in other things. I remember there's one scene in season one where Buffy says, "My spidey sense is tingling," and. <laughs> that sort of real comfort with like referencing other tv shows and other other texts has really kind of bled into the kind of sci-fi and fantasy that we have today
1: it helps to find its audience that way doesn't it and it shows its influences and wears it on its sleeve and i think that's i think that's quite a nice just a nice touch to have like it it gives it a bit of warmth so this one this one will hurt you spike's trademark coat cost two thousand dollars from a fashion store and then they ran it over repeatedly by a truck to give it a distressed look i'm sorry giles i'm I'm so sorry (sighs) that poor coat it must have been so scared it just you know what it was just sat there on a shelf thinking like someday some celebrity might wear me and i'm going to be very famous and i'm going to be loved by everybody I bet they didn't think they'd have like an absolute JCB running over them several <laughs> times just so they look the right way for a television show. But there we are. <laughs>
0: I love Angel and I love Spike and the two of them have influenced my look so much. I, uh, <laughs> I, I already had like a long flowing blue sort of coat which was sort of heavily influenced by Angel kind of look and then I'm not going to lie, the day that I got a long uh, full length black leather leather coat was probably one of the best days of my life. I can still remember <laughs>
1: all the details of that day beautifully. I've never known a man to have such an affinity for one, star- one particular piece of clothing.
0: There is a longer story about how I got that coat coat and and how i had to use my friends as
1: collateral to get it but
0: we'll save that for another time
1: (laughs) that sounds like that sounds like a pub story so in the in the original film from 1992 buffy says that her life goals her only life goals are to graduate go to europe marry christian Slater, and die although joss whedon has repeatedly stressed that the movie should not be considered canon for the television show by the end of it buffy actually does accomplish three of these goals graduate go to Europe and die, <laughs> although not in that order.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: it, I've not, I know I've not seen all of the show yet, but the fact that she, goes to, she graduates, goes to Europe and dies and not in that order, I already know I'm going to yeah. really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's me Those are awesome Thank you, Phil And now we have uh, a guest And I think I almost felt a little bit intimidated By this person's Buffy knowledge (laughs) Again, being somebody who was a fan Who watched it from the 90s at the time When you find somebody who was basically born 20 minutes ago Who's referencing things (laughs) you've never heard of (laughs) uh, She's
1: born 20 minutes ago, you know what I mean? I swear, yeah. I swear yeah. you think everybody's a baby. <laughs> if
0: you're younger than me, you were born 20 minutes ago. That's the system. Understand okay. it. Okay, like, I'm okay with that. There's there is, there's uh, theres six years difference between uh, my wife Claire and I, so if there are a few times when, ah, my child bride is but a stranger to the God, ways of the world.
1: God! Oh, you can't say that! That's terrible! Oh... Oh dear.
0: I do occasionally do things like, oh uh, yeah, no, I used to have this on video. Oh, I should explain, video was a bit like a DVD, (laughs) at which point I usually get the finger. Anyway, I'm going to shut up (laughs) up and uh, we'll let our guest introduce herself.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Julia. Uh, I currently work as a librarian uh, for a secondary school in Birmingham um, and I am a big Buffy fan.
0: Julia, it is an absolute delight to speak to you today on this one. Thank you so much. I think when we... When we talked about doing like a TV series and we mentioned Buffy, you were practically bit my hand off to be interviewed for this. So
2: <laughs> I'm very appreciative for you to have me here, thank you.
0: So let's get right to it. How did Buffy the TV show come to be?
2: So initially um, it came from the idea that Joss Whedon had about subverting the very common horror trope of the little blonde girl who's always getting herself killed in horror movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from that we had the uh, film Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1992 Uh, which was directed by Fran Rubal Kazooie although again as i mentioned joss wrote the screenplay for uh, the film he eventually walked uh, from the project after um shall we say conflicts yeah. <laughs> with um a certain cast member and also just the film was straying very far from what his vision of buffy should be well
1: it's
0: a perfect thing to watch if you want to see a version of buffy that that joss has no creative control over
2: yes i uh, i actually um i rewatched it uh, recently just to sort of get back into the uh, into the buffy kind of headset and to to use Buffy's own analogy it is cookie dough and it has elements there that almost have that Buffy feel Mm -hmm. but just not quite been in the oven long enough
0: yeah it's it's very much not still still baking at that point Uh, very young David Arquette in it though isn't it
2: yes there's a few Um, Ben Affleck actually uh, has has a very small yes so um he is uncredited as basketball player number ten. Okay. Um, the scene where one of Buffy's ex-friends turned vampire basically storms the basketball court. Um, he he growls menacingly at Ben Affleck, who who then you know recoils and uh, gets him the no ball. I have no idea about um, that. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> you know, there's the, in the um, in the Buffy comics, there's like um uh, like a comic book version of her origin story that is actually canon.
2: Yes. The origin, which came out in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine is a is a three parter comic that essentially uh, covers what the film covered mm-hmm. but just sort of made it slightly more canon yeah. um, for example, uh, in the film, um, Buffy's first watcher, Merrick, is is uh, uh, struck down um, by uh, Lothos, and um, in the comic, he actually um, decides to sacrifice himself um, and kill himself instead of allowing the vampire to kill him instead. Mm-hmm. Which is a they're two very different ways of playing out the same inevitable end for Merrick, which unfortunately is death. Um, so yeah, uh, Joss did eventually sort of ice the cookies. Yeah, <laughs> I finally. Suppose. Finally, got to um, do it his
0: way, even if it wasn't quite how he'd normally do it. it yeah, quite. What's fascinating, I always thought about Buffy when it showed up here in '99, was that you have this very, very young heroine who already has a history in the role it's not a uh, it's not an origin story and we never really get yes to see the origin story in full of it and she just sort of comes into the world fully performed for want of a better phrase you know
2: yeah i think what the what the film sort of shows quite well at least for me is sort of buffy's normal life before she discovers that she's a slayer yeah. and actually i think it gave me the understanding of what Buffy had to lose um, in order to sort of really uh, envelop that role and really become the Slayer. Um, Obviously, you sort of, I think, watching the film, you're not really sad that she sort of, you know, ditches her slightly airhead friends. Um, But you understand that they mean a lot to her still. And actually, the fact that she's having to miss, you know, cheer practice and that she can't you know, go to a senior dance with, without it being tra- uh, crashed by, by some sort of supernatural horror. Yeah. It sort of gave me a, a slightly better perspective, I think, knowing how Buffy is at the beginning of the series and how she's kind of already into that mindset.
0: So we have the film in 1992. Yeah. That bombs hard, and then it's yeah. <laughs> five years later that the Buffy the Vampire TV series, as we know it, comes mm. in, and it's a it's a mid season sort of filler, isn't it?
2: Yeah, initially. So um, something that Kai Cole mentioned in her um, in her open letter actually in two thousand seventeen. Kai Cole is Joss Whedon's ex wife, and there's actually a little bit of um, of controversy around that when she wrote this open letter, and actually this part of the open letter wasn't the point um, of that letter, it was mostly to describe certain aspects of her relationship with Joss Whedon that Mm -hmm. are not particularly um, very nice. But in that letter, she was saying how she could see how unhappy he was with the way that the film turned out and was sort of consistently urging him to to kind of push and to make it a TV show. Mm -hmm. And so when um, Sand Dollar Television um, sort of eventually went, do you want to, turn it into a tv show he gratefully accepted and of course that's then when we got buffy but buffy became so popular um the season three peaked with i think the most viewers that buffy had which was 5.3 million right Wow. then it just sort of it snowballed i didn't until i did extra research i knew obviously we had 12 seasons um so that's seven seasons in television and uh oh mass now five in in comic book form Um, but there are the sheer amount of novels of comic book spin-offs of comic book companions of behind the Mm scene companion novels there is just such a wealth of buffy content
0: have you seen the children's book
2: I have I had so actually because i I remember seeing it in foils once, and um the uh, man who introduced me to Buffy who told who said you have absolutely have to watch it um he and his wife had had a child not not too too long ago um and I meant to go back and buy it for them, <laughs> and I didn't in the end, but it was such I remember flicking through and, and having a, a skim read of it, and it was just the most adorable wholesome.
0: We've got to get that for Riley at some point. We've got to get that for our kid. Um, It's such
2: a gorgeous story.
0: Definitely. So what brought about the Angel spin-off, and how did it vary from Buffy?
2: As I mentioned, Season 3 was... uh, It just exploded in in view of popularity, and from Season 4 is where the first season of Angel sort of runs parallel with Buffy. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, there. They're quite similar, but I think the biggest difference is Buffy is very much a, a teenage story. It's about growing up. It's about the the adversities and anxieties of teenagers uh, through high school, through university, through getting a job, through you know other responsibilities that you have in that stage of early and sort of um, earlier adolescence and late late adolescence and early adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> um. But Angel is very much an adult show not particularly because it's more violent or sort of more racy but because the the anxieties that it plays on are very much more adult themed you know the idea of being a parent and yeah am I going to be a good enough parent and what does having a child mean the ideas of of redemption and this fight between good and evil in, in Buffy good pretty much always wins you know there's there's sacrifice involved uh the path is not always easy but at the end of it the underdog always kind of comes out on top in angel there is there is good and there is evil but there is such a thin blurry line between them mm. that good doesn't necessarily win but evil doesn't necessarily lose it's a very gray area
0: It does border on the nihilistic sometimes, doesn't it? Particularly with Mm. with the depiction of Wolfram and Hart, I think.
2: When I was doing my research, um, I read that um, Joss Whedon was very uh, inspired by uh, Jean Paul Sartre's book, uh, Nausea, I believe it's called.
0: That does not surprise me in the slightest.
2: It's uh, a slightly little bit uh, above my head in terms of philosophy, but this idea of sort of the art. existence in the universe doesn't actually really matter and actually that's summed up in Angel with (laughs) the the phrase um if nothing we do matters then all that matters is what we do yeah very much ties in with the with how Wolfram and Hart sort of initially starts as this very clear adversary that in Buffy might have been a one season big bad but then Become so entangled, and um, in a Wesley's case, quite literally, um, become so in- mm-hmm. entangled with with the team until eventually they are in Wolfram and Hart. They are Wolfman Hart.
0: Yeah, they get swallowed by the beast, effectively, don't they?
2: Basically, and and even then, that can be sort of a, a small analogy for for corporate life. You know, can you mm. can you change the system from within? Or is the system going to change
0: you first? You're right. It is a very adult thing. I think. I think a lot of people, whether it's the, whether it's specifically the corporate life, or I mean, even in the education sector, you still get a similar sort of feeling. You know, honestly, I heard that line. You know, if, if nothing really matters, then all that matters is what we do. Mm. I heard that at 19, and I thought that was a phenomenal line. It's it really sort of impacted me. And just coming from a Christian um, approach to things, then you always work mm. on the idea that, that everything matters. But I just saw like how even from uh, a completely atheist perspective, you could still come at it and still come to the same conclusion that, that everything mm-hmm. matters, whatever you do matters, doesn't it, you know? So finally, what would you say is the cultural impact of the Buffyverse on pop culture?
2: There's been uh, what I would sort of just put into two sort of categories on on the impact of Buffy on pop culture, one being sort of a technical and one being a cultural. So... Um, <laughs> The, the written makeup of Buffy, if we think about how each season is structured, you sort of have a smaller monster of the week um, that usually kind of dies in the episode and then yeah. sort of this overarching big bad. I would sit there and, and complain about sort of the first couple of seasons of Angel because it's it's not structured that way at all it's
0: it's it's very episodic isn't it
2: and my mum would sit there and go well you know star trek wasn't like that blake seven wasn't like that back in the day it wasn't like that
0: buffy was able to marry up the episodic with the the series arc you know obviously we'd had serialized storytelling before Mm. but that was one of the for me it was one of the um the real letdowns of like early Doctor Who, for example, you know, you'd, yes. if you're a casual viewer, you'd, you'd tune in and it wasn't the start of the episode and it wasn't the end. And you, you might not get to see either, you know, with, with Buffy, you could at yeah. least come away with a, an enjoyable episode on its own, but you still felt that things were progressing. Yeah. It was, it's that the marriage of the two, I think that did it.
2: Yes. From what I call new who, obviously when Doctor Who was uh, revived mm-hmm. in 2005, Doctor Who follows a similar standpoint and um, supernatural, Grey's Anatomy, The Walking Dead, there's there are so many even stuff like scrubs um has so many parallels with with the way that Buffy uses her monsters as metaphors yeah. and uses the the supernatural sort of set dressing as ways to flesh out the the anxieties or um the feelings that she's feeling. Yeah. For example in them um, out of sight, out of mind, you know, a girl who is so uh, ignored and so uh, misunderstood by her peers that she literally um, becomes invisible. Um, And you see this in things like sort of the illness of the week in stuff like Scrubs, where something that the patient is going through inadvertently also is something that the doctors and the nurses are going through as well. Um, My boyfriend was watching Scrubs alongside the time that I was sort of watching Angel. And so I got snippets of it. And so I would, uh, there's, I think there's, um, uh, Bob Kelso, I think has so many of these sort of rousing speeches that perhaps wouldn't be out of place in Angel or in Buffy. Um, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And similarly, I think Buffy sort of pushed what was normal with a lot of boundaries. So obviously once more with Feeling being the musical episode, um, musical episodes are such, they're sort of a weird niche of time when the musical episode was like a thing, so obviously Scrubs has one, um, and then it sort yeah. of I think became sort of an, an homage. So it's always Sunny in Philadelphia has one, Community has one, um, How I Met Your Mother has one as well, and it's something that I find you don't really see now. Is is the musical episode? It was a very
0: well it's... weird
2: sort of explosion yeah (laughs) it was sort of genre of sitcom
0: time it was an experiment that that worked really well in in buffy's case and with Mm. um varying degrees of success uh after that um scrubs did it fairly well the Grey's Anatomy episode of the musical episode yes. still makes me cringe just thinking about it. So it <laughs> it just, it really sort of exposes things for, for what they are. Mm. Julia, I could talk to you about this all day and <laughs> it, by the basis of the, this runtime, it looks like I'm, I'm trying to. Thank you so much for, for coming up and talking to us about two of my favourite shows.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute blast.
0: So Phil, that was Julia. What do you think?
1: It always impresses me how many people have such encyclope- encyclopedic knowledge of their favourite thing. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, And I also had yeah. no idea that there was comics as well.
0: Yeah, I've got some of the season eight and season nine Buffy comics, and they are just wonderful because obviously it's written by the same writers. You know when there's a character and that you see them in a different medium and they just don't sound quite right. Yeah. There's, this, there's, that, there's that sort of thing. And with this, it's wonderful because... They sound exactly like the characters, and it's just bueno, absolutely wonderful.
1: Oh, you know? molto bene!
0: <laughs> now it's time for finding the faith in the film.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My throat failed me then. <laughs> Don't injure yourself, buddy. I tried, to, I tried to impersonate a trumpet, and it turns out there's a reason that trumpets are trumpets and humans are humans. <laughs> so,
0: <clears throat> Phil cannot impersonate a trumpet, and it is his greatest failure in this life.
1: I mean, that probably just shows that I've got a pretty good life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for starters, I don't think I can overstate how much of an impact Buffy and Angel had on me. Turning up when I was 15, if nothing else, I was just grateful to have Tony Head be the main association with the name Giles rather than Farmer. (laughs) <laughs> uh, just so we're clear, anybody makes any Farmer Giles jokes, then... No, l- listen, I'm not going to mess around. You're just dead to me. It's that, that yeah. simple.
1: That's, uh, I, you're dead to me too, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> also, I've been wearing a cladder ring now for over 20 years. And when most people ask, I told them, well, you know, it's just a, a reminder of my Irish roots. When in truth, it was just because Angel wore one. <laughs> so... <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah really now claire's got a cladder ring uh we put the cladder symbol on all our wedding invites and we've even got a cladder door knocker it's kind of become a bit of a family symbol
1: that's cute
0: so anyway i am a dyed in the wall buffy fan but i believe you can love something and still be critical of it so these days it's impossible to talk about buffy without at least referencing the issues that have come to light about joss whedon Mm -hmm. Joss went from being a feminist icon thanks to his creation of Buffy to being revealed as a cruel and manipulative boss who was responsible for creating a toxic work environment and traumatising some of the cast and crew who worked for him. We're not actually going to talk about this topic that much as it's slightly outside of our remit. But if anyone wants to learn more, I would direct them to Charisma Carpenter's post on Instagram or Kai Cole's open letter when she and Joss got divorced.
1: It's a massive shame. Because there's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of things that Joss Whedon has done that that's influenced me a lot as a as a creative and especially as a filmmaker. You can creatively be aligned with somebody, but you don't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that you are morally aligned with them as well. Yeah,
0: my complicated feelings about Joss began long before any of these came to light. So Joss Whedon's attitude to his work has influenced my own approach to my own creative endeavours. He once said in a director's commentary, uh, "People often tell me." I'm not making Citizen Kane, but I think I am. And that (laughs) that heavily influenced how I approach all my work, whether it's a short film or sketch in church or, hell, even a podcast. No matter how inconsequential or overlooked, I always treat it like I'm making Citizen Kane. Joss was always upfront about his atheism, bordering on the provocative. He consistently referred to God and Jesus as the sky bully, which, to be frank, is just a bit rude. (laughs) <laughs> and, and yeah in the avengers commentary where captain america says there's only one god ma'am i'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that joss said uh just because i don't believe in god doesn't mean my characters don't and i always thought that was a, a bold and generous approach because to put a statement that you so fundamentally disagree with into the mouth of sympathetic character was always really impressive. I think the fact that Captain America is even nominally a Christian in an overwhelmingly secular medium is a big boost for a lot of
1: believers, you know? It sort of makes total sense for Captain America to be Christian because, you know, he's in the military, he believes in he's he, you know, he's a very all-American sort of character and there's a lot of there's a lot of belief in God that that sort of comes along with that. So so mm-hmm. d- it's Joss Whedon there making making him into a Christian. I feel he's just good writing. Yeah, I thought so. And the fact that they they really
0: front loaded it as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So joss Whedon is an atheist, and the Buffyverse is a fantasy world created by an atheist. So uh, the line in season seven, conversations with dead people, where a vampire asks if there is a God and she responds with nothing solid. That is basically the closest we get to a proclamation of faith in this show. Uh, We remember in the pilot where we said that uh, the earth wasn't formed in a paradise. It was formed by a sort of world of demons. And that's again, the closest we get there, you know? Yeah. And yet I thought I'd do something about Bit different to most critics. I thought, just for the hell of it, I would make an argument for the existence of God in the Buffyverse. Now, for clarification, I mean uh, my God, Jehovah, Jesus, burning bush, parting the sea, all that nonsense—that God. Okay. Cool. All right. Strap in. This is going to be an interesting one. I'm going to. If we don't get some complaints about this one, then I'm clearly not doing anything right. (laughs) So, anyway, Phil, how would you define? A miracle.
1: I'd say it was an event that happens where all the odds of it happening are stacked against it and it happens anyway. And it's usually a positive outcome.
0: Yes, that could still include uh, winning the lottery, if you, if you think of it in terms of just beating the odds. I mean, to be fair, some people
1: you. would consider that to be a miracle, depending on their, yeah. <laughs> their uh, yeah, ability.
0: So dictionary definition for this is, an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. To put that another way, that could be divine intervention when it comes to miracles a lot of them tend to happen when uh, the character of angel is around it's worth stating up front that the majority of what i'm talking about will focus on angel now to be clear i love buffy faith giles Xander, willow tara spike oz drusilla cordelia lawn gun fred dawn Darla, hell even connor i quite like Hmm? but i've just got to go where the inspiration takes me now At the time that I was watching this, uh, when I was a teenager, Angel was ostensibly a celibate character, which, when you're a celibate Christian as well, is really quite something. You know, it's a little bit of representation. Anything else where any characters are celibate, they're always presented as a little bit weak, a little bit soft or, or, or uh, overly pious or anything like that. Here yeah. we've got a character that's that, that can't have sex, but he's also powerful and righteous and usually the hero of the story. If he experiences a moment of true happiness, which is a wonderful euphemism, by the way. <laughs> then the curse that has put his soul back will be broken he will lose his soul he will go evil he will start killing people left right and center you know if there was an olympic uh, category for killing people then angel or angelus would be like consistently hitting the gold he would always be on the top podium you with me that's quite the curse he's also the one who's around when most of the the miracles are happening Okay, Mm. so let's start with the end of season two. Buffy, as a way of closing the portal to hell, stabs Angel and sends him to hell. And it's all, it's all, it's all sad. There's Sarah McLachlan music, so you know you're meant to feel sad there. (laughs) That's the rule, after all.
1: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah.
0: Then at the start of season three, out of nowhere, Angel just comes back from hell. Phil, just quickly. Which character in the Bible goes to hell and comes back?
1: Would that be Jesus? I'm that not... would be, would that be Jesus. Jesus.
0: Gold star from a man Phil over there. Absolutely gold... smashing it.
1: I've not had a gold star in years. I'm so pleased. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to get one. <laughs>
0: now, this is tricky, okay? Now, what I want to talk about is something that the biblical evidence for is flimsy. But the thing is, this goes beyond Gilesian headcanon and really starts to sort of roll into the Christian scholar headcanon. There are two lines in the Bible that suggest that Jesus went to... Hell. this is just a little aside here okay so Ephesians 4 verse 9 says what does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions that's when they're talking about the idea that uh, hell is somehow in the bowels of the earth you know um, uh,
1: yeah, I thought that and, for the longest time. I thought if you dug far enough, you'd find hell. Yeah,
0: back in the nineties, somebody put in like a an article about scientists digging far enough, dropping down a microphone, and being able to hear the screams of tortured souls. Oh, and I the heard thing about is...
1: that. I heard about that. Yeah. The
0: thing is, it was the nineties. We didn't have a way of fact-checking this nonsense, you know.
1: So it was—it
0: actually did the rounds in Christian evangelical circles for quite some
1: time. Google really is, and I and I use this term as an atheist, but Google is a godsend. Really is, you know.
0: There's also the line, um, "One Peter." Uh, so that's that's my man Peter uh, mm. writing his own book. Uh, wait well, he writes two books. There's one Peter. There's two Peter. Uh, chapter four, verse six. Uh, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body but live according to God in regards to the spirit. So in the Hebrew scriptures, the words used to describe the realm of the dead is Sheol Mm -hmm. and it simply means the place of the dead or the place of departed souls and spirits. Right. And the New Testament Greek equivalent of Sheol is Hades because obviously you hear Hades from, from sort of Greek. which also refers to as place of the dead. Now, other scriptures in the New Testament indicate that Sheol or Hades is a temporary place where souls are kept as they await the the final resurrection and and judgment. And then there's this line, and it's pretty much like a direct quote from Jesus in the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, okay? Revelations 1, uh, 18, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look—I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So this this idea that that's not metaphorical—that he actually holds, like a literal key to decide who to sort of control who can. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's the that's the the sort of imagery that they've got. I mean, maybe it's metaphorical, maybe it's literal. I, I just know. imagine I'll...
1: he's got like literally like a Yale. <laughs> 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 just that. I tell you what—you need to give it a bit of a shibby. But it does open eventually. It's just an act to it. It's an knack to it, right? <laughs> the baby's asleep next door, Phil. You can't make me laugh this <laughs> I've, 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 My baby's asleep too, dude.
0: So anyway, oh. all these things give us this idea of Jesus descending to hell, which was a key part of the Apostles' Creed that many Christians believed and recited, particularly in the early church. Yeah. Now, for me personally, I think... Uh, Jesus did go to hell. Right. Because to me it seems consistent with the idea that he suffered all the worst punishments when he became sin, you know, when he they sort of kind of puts it all all on him. Yeah, he absorbs um, it. Because if you think like a crucifixion is bad, but there are worse things out there. The idea is that he's he's experienced the worst that this world or the next has had to, to to throw at him so that he's 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 done it in our place you with me yeah 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 i get it that's my that's that's the that's the idea as as i understand it now i don't particularly know or i have to say care if there are any distinctions between sheol hades lake of fire out of darkness hell or whatever <laughs> all i know is that it's not somewhere that i want to be okay yeah. It is the Stockport of the afterlife.
1: <laughs> what is it with you, Stockport man? It's not even that.
0: <laughs> Stockport knows what it did. Stockport <laughs> knows.
1: Before we continue, I don't know why, but you've mm-hmm. just reminded me of a, of a line from um, from Brooklyn Nine Nine, to do with Hades specifically, and the um, the police chief just looks at this woman <laughs> that he doesn't like, and just goes, "Hang on, if you're here, then who's guarding Hades?" <laughs> so. <Black aside. laughs>
0: the The main episode we're going to be looking at in Buffy
1: is Amends, and Amends is the episode I watched. I made you watch. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. I thought it was um, mm. it was it was quite harrowing. You're like seeing someone yeah. trying to like you know like resist what is basically sort of like an in, their baser instincts almost. You know like it's, yeah. I really felt for Angel.
0: The metaphor they always use with Angel is the idea of somebody who is a drug addict. Yeah, or somebody who is an alcoholic, and they are terrified of using again, you know. And if they use, them, they're going to turn into a horrendous person, and they can't be around their loved ones.
1: I've heard that. I've heard that a lot before, and I I sort of see it with vampires specifically, especially like addiction. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of like almost like a you know like a, a a story of depravity and trying to escape depravity, like and the yeah. the sort of the clutches of it. Yeah, it's something I see a lot. I quite like. I quite like the you know the sort of metaphor there. I think that works really well.
0: Well, in amends, the first evil, the sort of ghostly presence, takes credit for angel for bringing angel back from hell. But like, really, is that believable? Let's let's look into that as a as a plan. The first <laughs> evil brings back a champion of good back from the dead in order to kill the slayer. Like. Why bother going to all the hassle? Why not just find some incel type with a gun to just get the <laughs> job done just as effectively? Do you know what I mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, seriously.
0: Personally, I think the first was simply just taking credit for Angel's return just to appear more powerful. As Buffy puts it in the episode, some great evil takes credit for bringing you back and you just buy it anyway we are barely finished with the first miracle of angel coming back from hell when the second one rolls around just as angel is about to kill himself with daylight in death by sunrise
1: what happens oh it starts snowing for
0: like the first time ever there is a massive snowstorm that comes in like an absolute massive snowstorm so much so that it blocks out any light whatsoever making it not only a cloudy day but literally blotting out the sun in a freak weather incident now i don't know about you but i'm from wales we have bad snotty weather all the time it doesn't stop the literal sun (laughs) from shining so we've got him coming back from the dead miracle one and then we've got this freak snowstorm stopping him from from killing himself, Miracle 2, okay? On the official Buffy the Vampire Slayer posting board at the time, Whedon declared that the snowfall may have been the work of the powers that be, which, to be honest with you, is like Joss Whedon code for God. So he says, The snow in Amends was good. Was it God? Well, I'm an atheist, but it's hard to ignore the idea of a Christmas miracle here. The fact is the Christian mythos has a powerful fascination to me and it bleeds into my storytelling. Redemption, hope, purpose, Santa... These are all important to me. <laughs> Whether I believe in an afterlife or some other universal structure or not, I certainly don't mind a strictly Christian interpretation being placed on this app by those who believe that. I just hope it's not limited to that. So that's that's Joss, as far as I see it, sort of giving me license to say, to sort of look into it this way. You know, Yeah, he's basically it, just gone, you can way. god this. You can godify this one, <laughs> yeah, you know? Just do what you need to do. <laughs> so, so far, two miracles. And I checked throughout the rest of the series. Nobody effectively takes credit for them. Nobody really does it to the point where you can definitively say that they, they're they responsible for these miracles. Are you with me? Yeah. So then we're going to jump over to Angel. And there's a lot we could talk about Angel. To be honest, there's a lot we talk about Buffy. But again, I'm the poor soul that has to edit these episodes and it's already running quite long as it is. <laughs> In the Buffyverse, there's a rule where a vampire can't enter a person's house without being invited. That's and- quite a
1: common vampiric thing isn't it
0: yeah so there's this episode one of my favorite episodes called epiphany where angel's friend kate who is an ex-cop who hates angel she she blames angel for the death of her father even though angel had nothing to do with it and her dealings with the supernatural have cost her a job and she's trying to commit suicide she leaves angel like a voicemail and angel comes over he starts banging down the door he's calling her in and then he just runs into the room and he saves Kate from overdosing, and then she kicks him out. Later on, when they're having a conversation about this, she draws attention to this by saying, I never invited you in. So this long, well-established rule that a vampire can't enter a person's home just gets broken in this one occasion in order for him to save this one woman. There's no attempt to ever explain it. The writers don't even touch it again. So surely that's going to be a miracle, right?
1: I mean that seems like a textbook definition of a miracle doesn't it if, 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 if you know if the rules are as strict as they
0: are the last example and i admit this is a stretch is the miracle that's hiding in plain sight Crosses. The cross repels vampires because their flesh burns up on contact with it. A symbol of pure good rejecting something that is purely evil. Like, I'm not naive. I know that the reason we have crosses in Buffy is because there was an established convention of the vampire subgenre for about 100 years before Joss Whedon came along. They have been there for a while. Yeah. But Joss didn't have to include crosses in his mythos. Other vampire texts have ignored them, and he could have just done so as well. By including them, and by including all these miraculous events, Joss Whedon inadvertently included God in his story. And yeah. I think that I think that's wonderful. I think that borders on hilarious. A little bit like <laughs> when we talked about Russell T. Davis or Big Russ, as he's known to his friends, creating a messiah <laughs> <Rolls>. figure. <laughs> ah, Russ.
1: <rolls.
0: laughs> So we've got we've got these atheists creating messiah figures. We've got them creating putting God into their stories, and I don't know if they're always do if they know they're always doing it. It's such
1: a a, a massive part of life, not just culture. Mm. Just like you know, it's it's taught in schools, and you you people yeah. have people talk about it on television, in books, in you know, in the street. Even it's 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 bound to get it's bound to sort of bleed into all parts of life it's just such a big thing i think
0: for me there's a reason that christianity as a meta-narrative endures i think there's something to Mm. it it's certainly not forgettable the last thing i wanted to talk about was the idea of how do we get our salvation okay how what what does that what does that look like what does it mean you with me sure so I wanted, the essential premise of the show Angel, in broad terms, is that Angel has committed so many horrors as Angelus, and he's trying to redeem himself by helping the helpless. Now, it is a great storytelling device that mm-hmm. sadly gets a little bit lost in later seasons, but it does have a central problem to it. Just quickly, Phil, have you ever heard of the Nails in the Fence story?
1: I have not heard of that, no.
0: This is, again, one of those stories that kind of gets rolls around church circles and it's it's an illustrative device there was once a little boy who had a bad temper and his father gave him a bag of nails and told him that every time he lost his temper he must hammer a nail into the back of the fence the first day the boy had driven 37 nails into the fence and over the next few weeks as he learned to control his anger the number of nails hammered daily gradually dwindled down he discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to drive those nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy didn't lose his temper at all. He told his father about it, and the father suggested that the boy now pull out one nail for each day that he was able to hold his temper. The days passed, and the young boy was finally able to tell his father that all the nails were gone. The father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence. He said... You've done well, my son. But look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You can put a knife in a man and draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry, the wound is still there. So Angel wants to help people and that is great. There is no better apology than a change in behaviour. But Nothing he can do, nothing he does, can ever undo what he did. Well, yeah. He's trying to save himself from damnation by working for it. But in the real world, that's,
1: that's not possible. That's quite um, macabre, really, when you think about it. Like, it's quite morbid. It, it is, but we, we've
0: seen some pretty horrendous things in the news recently about what men have done to women. And if you think about it, there's nothing they could do
1: to undo what they've done, is there? Well, no, they've done it now. Exactly. I mean, so I, I think the only thing that you could really do is just try and try to redeem yourself.
0: Yeah, you can try, and that's and that's not a bad thing. But doing that on its own is never going to get you anywhere. Okay. Yeah. And this is the point we make that that Christianity isn't just about being a good person. It's not just about doing good. Let me let me give you a quote from Ephesians two verses eight and nine. Mm-hmm. for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast so all that's saying is that salvation forgiveness it's a gift you don't yeah. you don't earn forgiveness it is something that is given to you it's something that was given to you because the person giving it loves you
1: you get that right i think i understand now yeah you can't work for forgiveness, forgiveness has to be given freely. Yeah,
0: it's that forgiveness, the salvation, that is a gift. You didn't earn it. You are not a good enough person to have earned it. It's it's just impossible. So we we can't get salvation by by works or doing good things or just being a good person. It's, it's never going to be enough because the bar is just too high.
1: Yeah, I understand. Well, I mean, for someone who's literally a vampire and eaten god knows how many people (laughs) it's it's gonna be quite hard to not go to hell at that point isn't it so
0: yeah and it's an extreme end of the scale but the the concept still applies to to everybody you know so does that mean there's no place for doing good should should we just not bother well no that's that that wouldn't work either okay now we've talked in the past about if you love somebody you show them that you love them don't you yeah it is not proof that you love them you can't say to somebody well I made you dinner so obviously I love you <laughs> you know you yeah. can't you can't show the proof but it is a it's almost like a like a side effect of loving someone yeah if you, like, if you love someone
1: I love you I would like you to survive on sustenance therefore I have yeah. made you this wholesome meal please eat it yeah. so that you survive and I can continue to love you thanks yeah
0: so the doing the things for them is not Proof in itself that you love them. It it is evidence of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I learned that the difference between proof is when something shows that something definitively is, and evidence is all stuff that suggests something. Mm-hmm. So there's this brilliant quote uh from James, and I can't remember whether this is the James that's the brother of Jesus or if it's just another James. But James two. is dead so what that's saying is you could be a terrible person you could uh ignore god all your life and then have a um, like deathbed conversion and you would still go to heaven like the rest of us but if you're a christian we expect you to act like somebody who loves god we we expect to be able to see it from you yeah do you know what i mean
1: yeah no of course yeah it's like you can't claim to be a christian and also be like an axe murderer (laughs) (laughs) it's again you're going
0: you're taking it to the extremes it's that phrase that we talked about with jesus when he says what you've done for the least of these you've done for me if yeah. you can walk past a homeless person and not ask them if you want them to buy a sandwich if you'd like if they'd like a sandwich then you did that for jesus you ignored him too
1: yeah i think i understand it a bit better <laughs>
0: yeah if it's somebody you love and if it's somebody you tell people that you love then you can't in all good conscience do that yeah so there are some people out there who just do good things because they're a good person and they are a great bunch of lads love
1: them oh like every I, lad every lad,
0: i do good things or i try to do good things because i love jesus and i want him to be proud of me that probably sounds really selfish and self, self-involved but that's my motivator yeah, there's a there is a, a, a thing there you know that's fair enough so that concludes our Finding the Faith in the Film section. Thank you so much, Phil, for listening to me witter on on this one. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no, it's it. all right.
1: I, I Like I say, I, I have a great appreciation for religion and for Christianity and all religion, really, because as I've said numerous times, like it gives people purpose and hope and it gives them something to hold on to when times are dark. You know, Even if I've not had that gift myself, I, I can still appreciate it and learn about it and see that it does good for people definitely
0: okay ladies and gents we are coming to the end of our god in film season here however if you still want more prime giles and phil content go over to the media mag podcast where you get to hear us talking about uh media theory and terminology and all that cool stuff for our next and final episode of the series, it will be Fleabag. I am so excited! I cannot wait to tell you about that one.
1: I'm really looking forward to that one. As we're recording this, I have watched like the first episode and may have a slight crush on Phoebe Waller-Bridge now. Yeah, so. yeah.
0: Get in line. There is an orderly <laughs> <leak you. laughs> queue. Yeah. Okay.
1: No, I mean, I'll have to consult with my wife first, but
0: I already consulted my wife. She's fine with it. It's cool. Damn okay. it! <laughs> All right, listeners, we will
1: see you next week. Uh, Phil, have you had a good time? As always, when talking about vampires and the possible existence of God yes I had a great time (laughs) me too me too alright listeners we'll see you next week bye 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 bye
0: Gordo Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman mixing by Phil editing by Giles our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee fact checking by Julia Hall Gordo Film is a Dask production please rate and review unless it's a one star in which case drive to downtown LA Dive headfirst into an empty pool, which will take you to a pocket dimension where you will undergo the demon trials. If you survive the hand-to-hand combat with the guy with the fists of fire and the flying stakes, then you can deliver your thoughts on a handwritten parchment. It will probably cost you your soul, though.